And what I've discovered in the leaders that gets them moving from reflection to action is the understanding of tapping into their purpose because then they go, this is no longer about success. It's about success beyond success. It's about legacy and it's about impact. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Dov Barron. Dov is the founder of Full Monty Leadership and the Authentic Speaker Academy for Leadership. With his number one podcast for Fortune 500 leaders, Dov Barron's leadership and loyalty tips for executives, Dov has an extraordinarily broad network and reach. He is a best-selling author of several books. His latest book, which we want to talk about, is Fiercely Loyal how high-performing companies develop and retain top talent. I was recently with Dov on his show, and we've had too much fun and could not stop the conversation. <laughs> and so I asked Dov to join me here to continue our live explorations. Dov, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Aviv. It's a pleasure and honor. I'm looking forward to serving you in the audience and always looking forward to a good conversation with you, mate. Let me ask you first of all the things, and we're going to just dive right in, okay? Sure. Um, <laughs> of all the things you have done, of all the things you've accomplished, what are you most proud of? Mm, good question. Uh, I would probably say uh, the de-radicalizing of a neo-Nazi and the results of what happened uh, that came out of that. Can you unpack that for us, please? <laughs> <laughs> How's that just out with a boom? <laughs> yeah. So many years ago, um, I, as you know, I had a public seminar company. We ran seminars and trainings for the public. We don't do that anymore, but we did. And back in those days, there were these multi-day events. Uh, where somebody came along and one of my clients uh, bought another participant an hour with me. And this guy who I'd met at some of the trainings but never actually gotten too deep with him, uh, he sat there and he's in for an hour and he's, for the first 10 minutes, he's talking, but it's all surface. And I just looked at him and said, Tony, what's going on? Like, you know, my time's not cheap, so don't waste it. Use this. Your friend bought it for you. And he looked down at the floor as if to as if they find the answers in the, <laughs> in the fibers of the carpet. And eventually I said, Tony, what is it? And he swallowed a couple of golf balls and told me he'd been a neo-Nazi and that he'd been the head of war, white Aryan race, and had taken uh, the government, the federal government of Canada to the Supreme Court twice in order to try and have British Columbia become a white-only province. Uh, he'd appeared on Montel. He'd done all kinds of things that were, let's say, less than, less than spectacular. So he's telling me all this, and he's, you can see the shame on his face as he's trying to tell me. And he looks up at me, and as he looks up at me, I've got this huge smile. Hmm. And he says, what are, you, like, what are you laughing at? And he's mad. Like, what are you laughing at? 
I said, you do know I'm a Jew, right? <laughs> and, he go, and he says, you know, he has, a, he has an expletive and then says, oh, the irony. And I said, yeah. So that was the beginning of our work together. And we were invited to speak at the UN. Uh, actually, it was in 2016. Uh, asked to speak at the UN. And we spoke together at the UN. And as we spoke there, the moderator for this particular panel was a Muslim lady from CNN who said, how could you possibly serve this man? You know, here's a man who would have willingly wiped out everybody you, you, know, you are connected to. And I said, well, that was easy. And she said, how? And I said, I have a rule in my life. It's very simple. She goes, what's that? I said, nobody sits in front of me who isn't me. She goes, what do you mean? You had been a neo-Nazi? I said, of course not. She says, I don't understand. I said, well, what you saw was a neo-Nazi. What I saw was a highly intelligent, highly articulate, creative young man who was desperate to be seen and have significance and to be loved. I said, I, I remember being that man in my 20s. I could have compassion for that. You saw a neo-Nazi. I didn't see that. I saw the other things. And that was the beginning of our relationship. And so that for me is... Definitely my proudest moment is catalyzed so much of what I do in my work because I truly believe that the best way for us to learn is to listen to people we disagree with. And the beauty of your story is the capacity to see in others what they don't see in themselves. Absolutely. And what often all the people around them are incapable of seeing in them. Well, there's, a, there's an old wonderful saying that says, uh, those who need love the most are the ones who, who appear to uh, deserve it the least. Well, appear is the key word in there, appear. Everybody's, the thing that we all need to know, you, you know you know this, Aviv, because you and I work in the same sort of world. We work with these high-level leaders who are incredibly successful, and people look up to them, and you know, they're in awe of these the way they live. It's so amazing. And they're humans, just like the rest of us, and they've got insecurities and fears and sadness, and they're no different than the guy down the street. And we're all humans, and remembering that, Remembering that humanity in people is so powerful because the more you scale up, the easier it is for people to pedestalize you and create the emotional distance. And we have got to re return to that. So my clients and yours will show up in a way that lets us see them in ways that very often their own family don't even see them. Leadership is the center of your work. You work with leaders. Absolutely. What are the, the top three or even five trends that leaders must reflect on today? Good question. I think that there are trends they've got to reflect on, and unfortunately, that's what they do. They reflect on them, <laughs> which means they don't take much action a lot of the time. So, uh, so for instance, authentic leadership is, is trendy. I've been speaking about it for about 15, 20 years, but people don't know what that means. Conscious leadership is trendy. People, oh yeah, but they don't know what it means. Emotional intelligence or emotionally intelligent leadership. Yeah, but they don't know what it means. So it's more than reflecting on it. It's the willingness to have the courage to embrace it. So when we talk about emotional intelligence, and most, of, most leaders, as you know, have read Daniel Goldman's book, Emotional Intelligence, and they think it's something to use on others. No, no, these are tools. They're not weapons. 
There's something you use on yourself first so that you become better at it in the world. Conscious leadership is not about being conscious of everybody else. It's about being conscious of yourself, being mindful of your thoughts and the drivers, why you are thinking, feeling, and behaving in a certain way. Authentic leadership means this. It means to be authentic. Well, people go, well, I'm, I, know, I know I'm a bit of an ass, but that's authentic, right? Because I know that. No, that's not authentic. That's limiting. So being authentic means being authentically vulnerable. So vulnerability is a part of authenticity. And for people in our age bracket, you know, we learned that being vulnerable is a weakness. It's actually your greatest strength today, not your weakness. So those are the places that we need to not just reflect on, but to actually apply so that we can become better and better as leaders. Well, let's unpack and, and unravel because there, yes. there's, there is a lot in there and I'll, I want to get back to uh, conscious and authentic leadership yes. in, in a little bit. But first, let's address the, the first thing you, the first point you made, which is we need leaders more than just reflect on those ideas and trends, but embrace and apply. What I hear in, in there is, to me, you are describing enlightened leadership in, in the sense that it is an inside-out process. That is where a leader is, is curiously engaged in her own or his own growth and development um, while developing and helping their people develop. Absolutely. So what have you discovered in helping adults? We're talking about adults. Often we're talking about adults into their 40s, 50s, and 60s. What have you Absolutely. discovered about helping leaders find that sense of openness? And even malleability that is so central to the, the personal growth journey that, that is part of, of leadership such that when they reflect on, on an idea, they move to embrace it and to apply it. What, what have you discovered about that process? How do you help people move from reflecting to embracing and applying? It's a great question. And I, I know you'll resonate really well with this is in what we've found consistently is there's a surface level of leadership and, and the surface level of leadership is we're going to leadership because of our own emotional inadequacies. We want to have some level of power or whatever it is. And a lot of times we can't admit that, but that's still part of what goes on. And I'm not condemning that. I'm saying, okay, fine. Then there's another level and it's still on the surface. And that other level is I want to create a better life for the people that I love. Great. That's okay too. But if once we've got you know, we've got some seniority, we've got some recognition. So that's covered. Okay. And now we've bought the nice house and the nice car and we can make sure our kids go to college. So that's covered. Now what? And when we get to that deeper level, what we discover is this. Why are you doing this? Well, I want to make the world a better place. There's some element of I want to make the world a better place. You know, the work that I do is around purpose. Finding what we call true purpose. It's not your why, it's the why within your why. And what I've discovered in the leaders that gets them moving from reflection to action is the understanding of tapping into their purpose, because then they go, this is no longer about success. It's about success beyond success. It's about legacy and it's about impact. That is what gets people really moving mm. from the idea to, I, you can have a bigger impact. Yes. Do you want that? Yes. Okay. Then there's only one way to do that. And that's with action. 
it's not theory anymore. It's activating that sense of uh, the presence of purpose that's latent in you, perhaps from the time you, you, came, to, you came to this world, you came to this life, and, and once you, you are able to sense that impulse from the inside, it's not a concept, it's not a nice words you, you write on a slide. Instead, it, it is your true sense of calling that perhaps you're able to translate into a nice purpose statement, but the statement is more a description of something that, that's intrinsic and is inseparable for why you're here. Absolutely. And as I said, you know, very often people, you know, we're brought in to work with a company and work with them developing their purpose or with the team or with an individual, a CEO, C-suite leader. And they'll often say, well, you know, we've got our purpose. And I'll say, what is it? And then they'll tell me and I'll go, okay, that's not your purpose. And I go, and they go, how do you know? Because you're not living it. <laughs> that's how I know. Because you, the truth is that when we do the work, I know you're already, if you brought me in to do that work, I know you're already doing it. You just don't know you're doing it yet. Or you don't know to the degree of which you can do it. And it's that desire to make an impact on the world, this desire to shift something that has likely been there since you were a child. It's what I outline in my book, One Red Thread. It's, it's your purpose has never gone away. Your passion transitions different things that you're passionate about. We all remember being straight males and being 15, 16, 17, 18. We know what we were passionate about. And if that was our purpose, we'd all be working at Victoria's Secret. That's not purpose. Purpose is different. Purpose is, is actually what is transported in the vehicle of your passion. Passion is a vehicle. Purpose is what transports. And tapping into that allows us to make that huge difference. What is the nature and range of inquiry that you introduce to leaders as you do the work of purpose with them to help them access that interior flame? Uh, there's many pieces to it, but I'll just give some fundamental ones that I think will help our listeners, our, our viewers to, to grasp it. And so the first place I would ask you to start is what's always bothered you? Mm. And people go, well, what do you mean what's always bothered me? No, no one's bothering you today. You might say, well, I, you know, and I'm just using this as an example because it's top of mind. Uh, you know, I'm really frustrated with Trump. Well, that's really not relevant because it's not over time. That's today. Okay. Or I'm frustrated with Nancy Pelosi. You know, okay, that's today. What has bothered you for as long as you can remember? What, and what is it that in a conversation with your friends, you think, why hasn't somebody fixed this yet? Why haven't we, society, come together to, to fix that? What, it, what is the problem? Why haven't we done that? And it's something that we've likely said someone else has got to do it, yet it's always bothered us. That's part of the one red thread. It's one of the fibers of the one red thread that you're looking for. So that thing that has always bothered you, that maybe you, when you were idealistic and you weren't looking to uh, buy a bigger house or a better car or whatever it was, that you were sort of wanting to change that in the world. That's part of your purpose. That's where you start. Another thing is this. Can I give an actual exercise? Is that okay, Aviv? Do we have time yeah, for sure. that? Sure. Okay, so, because I want people to really grasp this. So I want you I mean, I'll ask you this question, and I'm sure you can answer it simply. Have you ever been to a funeral? Yes. Of course. We've, most of us have been to funerals. And if you've been to a funeral and you've sat there, you know that the job of the person giving the eulogy is very simple. 
and that is to dry clean the history of the person who's in the box. That's it. That's what their job is, is dry clean them, take out all the dirty spots and make them beautiful and clean. And I can remember a very good friend of mine inviting me to come to his father's funeral. I didn't want to go. I knew his father. I didn't want to go because his father was putting it nicely an ass and was very, very mean to my friend when he was a child. So he invited me to the funeral. I was like, I don't want to go. And he goes, I'd like you to come to be my support. I said, okay, but I'm not sitting at the front. I can't do that. I need to be able to sneak out if it just gets too bad. He goes, no, no, that'd be great. So we sit at the back. We go in there. There's a person at the front who delivers the eulogy. Now, this man was a cruel man. He beat my, my friend with a Hot Wheels track while he was tied to a, a boiler. That gives you a kind of sense of how mean and cruel he was. But the man at the front giving the eulogy told a story about how this guy had once paid the rent of the neighbor and never asked for the money back. This single instance of his life became the definition of his eulogy. It wasn't a definition of the man. It was, it was his eulogy, and everything else was dry cleaned out. As we sat there, I could hear the groans of my friend and other people who knew his father well. And then I listened to the next part. So the first thing I want you to do in this exercise is I want you to think of this. In your eulogy, what do you ideally, ideally want them to say? Ideally, so I'll give you mine. Dove was a highly courageous man who lived his life on purpose and helped others to fulfill their purpose so as to touch the lives of those who will never know his name and whose name he will never know. That's called my external purpose, mm -hmm. right? That's the dry cleaned, no matter what else I've screwed up on, that's what, I, that's, and that's what I'm living towards every single day. As I sat in that funeral, so that's what you need to do. What do you want it ideally to say? Because as I sat in that funeral, I could also hear the whispers. I could hear the whispers of the truth. So my question to you is now that you've got the eulogy written and you need to take time and your journal and do it by hand and write it out. Now you ask, what's the whispers? And the whispers are, what would you hate them to say? What would you just loathe for people to say? And by the way, what you would loathe for them to say may not be even true. It might be a fear. Or it may be something from your history, but you would just loathe for people to say that. And so when I had to think about mine, when I got to mine, none of them worked. And how do you know they work? Because they got to feel like a punch in the gut. you got to feel like, oh, I, that would be so horrible. If I was floating around in my funeral and I could hear that whisper, that would just be so horrible. That would be condemnation right there. I couldn't bear it. What is it? And when I got to mine, it didn't work until I put it in the mouth of my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. If somebody else was saying it, I could dismiss it. Pfft, whatever. Who cares? I care what your opinion is. But when I put it in the mouth of my grandchildren, then it was a punch in the gut. So now I have my aspiring eulogy and I have the pain of the whispers. Right. Those two things, where they tie together, that will show you your purpose. Very good. That will show you what you're on. Yeah, very good. Very clear. Uh... I can relate to the grandchildren. I became a grandpa three weeks ago. So uh, congratulations. Can, thank you very much. I can now actually imagine that. Now you're in the AK club with me. <laughs> <laughs> so let's build on this idea of, of trends. And let me ask you further, based on the work you, you're doing at this time with, with leadership teams, with, with leaders and small and large companies, what in your observation 
do they most struggle with at this time? What are leaders struggling with? So I should say the thing that leaders are most struggling with in an age bracket that is about 45 plus and depending on how old they are. So at the upper end, when they get to 65, 70, it's letting go. Mm -hmm. That's the number one thing they're struggling with is letting go. And the reason for that is because they go through identity crisis. So if I let go of this, who am I? Because you That's can't right. walk into the room and say, hey, I'm Harry, uh, Harry Smith, and I'm the owner, CEO of, if you just go in and say, hey, I'm Harry Smith. Ah, panic. I don't know who I am anymore because we've got so much identity invested. And that's part of the challenge is if we don't grow forward, then we stay history and we stay invested in the history and we don't know who our identity is. It's, it's like empty nest syndrome, but only with your business. So they hold on way too long. That's number one. For the younger end of that, which is 45 to 60, the biggest thing they struggle with is this idea of vulnerability. Because we were trained that vulnerability is weakness, but vulnerability is not weakness. So if vulnerability is weakness and I have to be vulnerable, then the mind only works in polarity. That's all it does. It works in polarity. So I either have a mask on and the wall up and nobody gets in. Oh, so now I'm supposed to have vulnerability, so I got to let everybody in on everything. That's never going to happen. I'm not going to do that. No, no. There's something in the middle. It's called healthy vulnerability. And that healthy vulnerability requires us to be discerning. So the example I like to give is Tim Cook, who is in that age bracket. Tim Cook is the CEO of Apple, came out and said he was gay. That was vulnerable. For a man in his position, it was a vulnerable thing to say, a man of his generation to come forward and say, yeah, I'm gay. However, he didn't tell us all the gory detail of his bedroom antics because that we don't need that. He was discerning about what we needed. And vulnerability is to have the discernment to reveal what is needed, but no more. And that takes some practice. That takes some learning. And one of the ways to learn it is leaders, number one, must go first. And number two, must wait for reciprocity. So if I reveal something to you and you reveal something to me, then I can reveal something else. Yes. Vice versa. Do you have an observation about the 30 to 45, the, the next age bracket? I do, because the 30 to 45s, you know, because now, you know, when we think about millennials, it's easy for us to think about kids. But millennials in 2020 will be 40 years old. They're not kids. These are people already in leadership positions. So for me, there, there is quite a distinction between what we call later millennials who are now 40 and younger millennials who are 30 and younger. So there's a distinction there in actually how they operate. It's fascinating to see even that. They had less screen time at the upper end and more screen time at the bottom end. Yeah, the so, people that were born 96 and later, we call them digital natives. They actually cannot separate the, the offline and online. So the, I don't know if, if the, those are the Y or the Z or the Z plus generation, but give me, give me your assessment then. What are they struggling with? Because, and, and part of the reason why I'm asking and, and my interest mm -hmm. in talking about passion, I see not just inside organizations, but on the global scale, the kind of complexity of issues we are facing Those issues, if we are to successfully resolve, they will require cross-generational partnership and collaboration because Absolutely. they all can bring something to the table. We need to understand the differences and find also what we can bring to the table to indeed unleash the, the, 
the best, most robust collaboration. So what, is your, what, is, what are your insights about the 30 to 45? Well, the, the, the number one issue there is intimacy, is what does intimacy mean? I've got a couple of very senior executives that I'm working with uh, who didn't even know they're not intimate. That's mm. what's fascinating to me. That, like when I bring up, well, you know, you, have a, you clearly have an issue with intimacy. No, I don't. I'm married with kids. Let me interview your wife. And your wife says, oh, yeah, definitely. He doesn't know how to be intimate. Or she doesn't know how to be intimate sometimes. It's like they don't know how to be intimate because they don't understand this sharing world. So they, they, they share, but it's not intimate. And that's, that's really confusing for those of us who are a little bit older. Well, if you share, you know how much sharing is intimate and how much is not, right? No, actually, they don't. So what they'll often share inappropriately and sometimes share without any depth whatsoever. So intimacy is a huge issue. Then we get into generational bias, which is what you're talking about. So the generational bias is those people over a certain age are stupid. They don't get it. And those people under a certain age don't have enough experience, so they don't get it. And the truth is, as you and I both know, is that today's workforce demands, demands, doesn't require, demands up mentoring and down mentoring and sideways mentoring. So I have to be able to mentor those who are above me. I have to be able to mentor those who are below me and those who are my peers. And by doing that, I can recognize that I have my gifts, but you have yours. And that I didn't necessarily learn at the same speed you did. Because that's what we used to do before. I remember getting a hard time because, well, you haven't paid your dues. Well, what exactly are dues? What exactly are dues? See, in the old world, we used to say, you need to come in at eight and leave at five. Now, I don't care if you come in at eight and leave at five. I don't care if you come in at two and leave at five. I don't care. What I care is, do you do the work? That's do all you I care deliver, about. Do you, deliver, do you deliver results? Right. Do you what deliver do? results? If you can deliver results in half an hour from the golf course, please go play golf. Place for me, please, this idea of intimacy. Why is intimacy important in the context of leadership? Where is it in the cosmology of ideas that, that uh, you integrate intimacy to leadership? You know, it's such a great question because it seems, again, so much things that seemed, you and I talked about this when you were on my show, so much of what seemed like personal versus professional, and those worlds are very much blurred. But here's the thing is that, there is no true compassion unless we have intimacy. And today's workforce requires empathy and compassion. If you don't have empathy and compassion for the people who work for you, they will go somewhere else. Why? Now let's go back to millennials. When we do the research on millennials, millennials want meaningful work. They want to work in a place that is purpose-focused. Yes, they, want to, they don't necessarily know their own purpose, but they want mastery. So they're trying to aspire, they're trying to grow, and they want autonomy. They don't want somebody pecking at them and micromanaging them. The analogy I give all the time is just think about yourself in an intimate relationship. How would your partner like it if you told them what to do all the time? How well would that work for you? Mm, I'm thinking that you wouldn't be much action in the bedroom. Nothing would be happening. You would be overbearing. It wouldn't work. Okay, if you, were, if you were not listening properly, which is an intimate skill, how long would your partner stick along? Not very long. They'd get up and leave. Well, why would an employee stay? 
So this is why intimacy is so important. But intimacy, again, is reciprocal. So the analogy I like to give people all the time is this. I want you to think of this. On this side, you have a friend. And on this side, you have an acquaintance. And they want you to imagine that you've known both of them about the same amount of time. What is the difference between these two people? You've known them about the same amount of time, so it's not that. Yet this one is a friend, and this one is an acquaintance. The difference is reciprocal vulnerability. Reciprocal vulnerability creates intimacy. And, and, builds, go, well, tru and builds trust. Builds enormous trust. So people say, but I don't want that with my, with my employees. And my answer to that is really simple. Good, then get out of business. That's right, because this is the argument that I place, which is that if often in, in uh, certainly in North America, mm -hmm. but that is also true in, in Europe, let alone China and, and, and India, which is that people spend more time with their coworkers than they do with their loved ones. It's, Absolutely. It's, it's the, the ridiculous conundrum of modernity. We, we go to work and we spend the best hours when we are most fresh and most vital in our mind with, in terms of our creativity. We deposit the highest energy in the work environment. We come home often only to be exhausted and tired with our loved ones. So unless you can make the work experience meaningful, purposeful, when will you develop and grow and evolve as an, as an individual and as a professional? It makes Absolutely. no sense. It makes no sense. And, and the interesting thing about this is, this is one of the things I love about millennials. They get it. See, our generation, we're trying to, um, and, and even Gen X has tried very hard to do this work-life balance. Millennials understand work-life balance is nonsense. There's no such thing as work-life balance. That's why they want work-life blend. They don't want a foosball machine because they want a foosball machine. They want to, and you can see the research. Gallup did fabulous research on it. They want to work with people who are their friends because they want that intimacy because they understand that the people I'm hanging out with all day at work, I'm spending more time with them than I am with my family. I need to feel that there's an intimacy between all of us. And that's what happens. And when you do that really well, because we know millennials don't stick around as long as, as baby boomers But when you do that really well, those millennials will walk away and they're not leaving you. They're just going to another opportunity. And they're happy to tell their friends who they also socialize with and say, hey, you should go work for a beef's company. They're awesome. It, they're not walking away with any bad feeling because this was a work-life blend. Their friends then, they go, we work, work, work with the Veeps community, they're fabulous. And you know, my mate Joe's there, and Joe's a great guy, and you're going to love Joe. And there's that being part of another community. And these days, they, of course, uh, offer all these comments free on, on Glassdoor and other apps and, and such. Absolutely. You talked earlier about authentic leadership. Mm -hmm. When we were on your show, I discussed the two different kind of authenticities. I, I, I offered that in, in my definition of authentic leadership, I look at the authenticity of the current state, that's authenticity one, and the authenticity of the future state, which is authenticity two. And, and I offer that, first of all, people sometimes mistakenly think that authenticity is, I tell you all that I feel right now this minute, which of course is, is not what we mean when we talk about authenticity. It's what you talked about a minute ago. It's when you exercise discernment mm -hmm. to choose 
what in this moment in time can you offer from your personal experience that is relevant and is on point and will be meaning making to this conversation and will expose from you such that there is interpersonal currency that facilitate connection, trust, collaboration, and, and, and so on. But then there is this authenticity too, which is realizing that we are now in a dialogue addressing a challenge or, or something that, that we need to address right here, right now. And then there is the future potential, what we may be able to become tomorrow, together and, and each one individually. And in my experience, this is one of the reasons why purpose, the purpose work you do is so critical. Yes. Because if we, if we leave out authenticity too, if we leave out the imaginative dialogue about who we are becoming, we're missing more than 50% of the meaning making that's available for us in the conversation. How do you bring that? How do you integrate that in, in the work you do around authentic leadership, but talk to me about the, the model that you coach and, and lead people through the discovery of authenticity uh, to, to make that part of their leadership. Again, good question, um, because I think that you're absolutely right. It's wonderful to be authentic in the moment, but for us, it's really around, as you said, around purpose. But then, in, so the, the framework of it is this, this is the purpose, we we'll put that at the center, okay, if that's, that's, the, that's the foundation of what we're, we're doing here. But now what are the pillars that will hold that up? And we, we call those maxims. They're not values, the maxims. Maxims are different than values. Values are societally conditioned and very misunderstood. So people say, my highest value is family. What does that mean? Highest value is integrity, creativity. These are words that are thrown around that are trendy. They don't really have any meaning. Whereas maxims have a deep emotional connection and that's where we have to go to. And this is the part that's been missing is we now need to bring emotion back into business because it is business. So now we've got purpose, which is a deeply emotionally connected piece for each individual, the maxims that support that. And then what's non-negotiable to that. So give me an example of what you mean by a maxim so we can wrap our minds around that idea. Yeah, I will uh, happily. Um, so as I said, though, it's the maxim becomes non-negotiable. So I'll give you an example that's got nothing to do with business because I think it'll be easy for people to grasp it. So I've been married for 22 years. And when I was single, when, my, when I first started dating my wife, she thought I was a player. That's the term. Um, and the reason she thought I was a player is because I spent 18 months single before I met her. And I went out on lots and lots and lots of dates. She understands now and understood shortly after that that's not what was happening. What I was doing was I was going out on interviews. I wasn't going out on dates. I was going on interviews. My interviews had very strong parameters, very clear process of how I was doing them. And that process was aligned with my maxims. So, for instance, I was going out to interview these people, and I knew exactly what I wanted. I had 61 things on my list, 18 of which were non-negotiable. Those were maxims. They were not high preferences. They were not I kind of likes. These are non-negotiable. But you only get to a non-negotiable maxim by understanding that you, it actually takes work to break it down. So, for instance, one of mine, non-smoker. Pretty simple, right? No, it's not pretty simple. That, we might say non-smoker, that level is a value. But at a maxim level, it's different. 
What is the emotional connection to it? Why does it matter? How does it matter? And how do I define it? So I remember going out on one of my, quote, interviews, and I said to this young lady, um, do you smoke? She goes, no. I said, oh, that's great. And I kind of left it there, and we finished dinner, and we went outside, and she went in a purse and got a cigarette out. I was like, I thought you said you don't smoke. She goes, oh, I don't. Aren't you smoking now? She says, I only have one after, one after dinner. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Thanks. I guess we're done. Thank you. Another lady I met on a date, do you smoke? No. Um, at any time? Well, I only smoke on my birthday, one cigarette, and at New Year. Well, I know that I'd like to be with the person I love on their birthday and on New Year. That's out. Another one came along, and, and I said, do you smoke? She goes, no. I said, what about after dinner? No. What about your birthday? No. What about you know New Year's or special occasions? No. She goes, I gave up three months ago. <clears throat> We're done. Why? Because I understand addiction. I know how it works. Under stress, we regress, and relationship can be stressful. So there's a good chance you'll be smoking, and it would annoy the hell out of me. So what my maxim became was, my maxim was, non-smoker does not smoke, has never smoked, or has not smoked in 10 years. That's clear. There is no wavering. It's absolutely solid, because that supports where I am in relationship and where I want to be in relationship. How did your wife... Uh like the idea when she finally realized that she needed to come through 21 maxims and 63 other qualifications. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, there's a funny story about that because my wife and I were dating. And again, remember, I'd done all these interviews. We were dating when we thought probably like now, you know, she's made it through. She's, we're at like half a dozen dates. And she's over at my place. And I said, come in here. And she comes in. I said, sit on my lap. She says, on my lap. And I show her the screen of my computer. And, and I go, just read this list. And I've covered at the top. It doesn't say what it is. And she's reading this list. And certain things are highlighted in different colors, which are non-negotiable, high preferences and preference, right? Non-negotiable are the maxims. So she's reading through it all. She goes, when did you write this about me? Nice story. I said, roll down a little bit. She rolls down a little bit. And at the top it says what my list is, what I'm looking for in a partner, what's non-negotiable. And then it has a key. This is non-negotiable. She's like, when did you write that about me? There's a couple of things that were on, like, those would be nice that I didn't really care about, that she didn't meet, but every, everything that was non-negotiable was rock solid. You have recently written about mental and emotional hygiene. It's a nice segue from what we just talked about. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? How do you define mental and emotional hygiene? Yeah, uh, thank you for remembering that. You know, it, it's one of the things that I, I think that we are a bit lazy about our mental and emotional hygiene. We tend to put ourselves around things that will contaminate us, uh, whether that is in our environment or whether that is in what, I mean, there's an old saying, you are what you eat, but I would put it further and say, you are what you consume, right? And you are what your environment is. And at the level of epigenetics, we know that you know, the, the, uh, the primacy of DNA is an illusion. It's not true. We used to think that, you know, you are determined by your DNA. What we now know is your DNA is determined by the environment that it's in. So if, you're, if your DNA is determined by the environment that you're in, then we also know that there are receptors on the skin and you are actually picking up frequency modulation, emotional energy. You're picking up all those things on the outside. And when we're not very emotionally hygienic. So we don't take care of ourselves. We just let anything in. So there's a need for us to have caution, not to be 
distant from people, but to be willing to say, this is not healthy for me and I've got to get out. And I think that where we lack the most amount of emotional hygiene is very often with the people who we love or who love us. That's the place it lacks the most. We tend to be, oh, it's, it's fine. It's my mom. It's my sister. It's my brother. It's my aunt. It's my wife. No, no. Listen, you got to get, I like what Ian Van Zandt said years ago. Sometimes the greatest weight around your ankle is your own family. And it's not because they're mean or horrible or bad people. It means there's an old saying in speaking, and it says, a wise man is a fool in his own village. And my add on to that is, and a freaking idiot in his own family. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, it's understanding that they likely can't see you in the frame of which you want to live. They're going to hold you in the frame with them. There's nothing wrong with them. It's not bad. It's actually how the psyche works of a human being. And so you actually have to have the discernment to say, I cannot have this conversation in this environment. I cannot be with these people around this. My big ideas don't belong here. I can't take all of my belongings into this mini. So, you know, the, the family environment might be a mini and you have a truckload of really great stuff. So we have to be really discerning about it. It makes much more sense once you do the work of purpose and realize that you are here for a mission. Because if, you, if you're not pursuing something, if there isn't that permanent line, the red line, what you describe as the red line, unless you have that, unless you are going after something, it's very easy to get confused. But if you do have a sense of, a, of purpose and a sense of a calling, then everything is either an enabling support or it somehow pulls you away from that. And it, 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 it's not that everything becomes black and, black and white, but it, it's much closer to that than it would be without a sense of purpose. You're absolutely right. It is much clearer with that. And at the same time, It's understanding that, first of all, you, as you listen to this, as you watch this, I want you to get this. You have a purpose. You've always had a purpose. You may not have stepped into it. You may not have claimed it. You may not have done the work to fully reveal it yet, but it has always been there. But you have been surrounded by people who, for whatever reason, have not maybe potentially fully supported you going into that place. And I want you to know this, that this, I say this all the time, you know, because you and I talked about this. Purpose work, real purpose work, not Simon Sinek's to start with wise, lovely book, great book, and I'm supportive of it. So please don't get me wrong. But really going into purpose work, that takes courage. Leadership is courageous. Leadership, real leadership, authentic purpose-focused leadership is not for wimps. It takes courage. You will have to stand up. You will have to face the dragon, whatever the dragon is, so that you can transform into a dragon, so that you can become something magnificent, because that's why you're here. And here's the deal. You've always had a purpose, and if you don't fulfill it, there are people in the world suffering. So my question I want to put to you, for you to hold on to, is who will suffer if I continue to play small? Mm. And by the way, when I say small, I'm not talking about compared to them. Many years ago, my wife and I, when we first met, we were driving somewhere on a five-hour drive, and I was working on an exercise for a workshop. And I said, do you want to help me? She said, sure. I said, I'm going to call something out, and I want you to write down, score me an answer from one to ten. She goes, okay. I said, then I'll tell you what it is before you show me what you wrote. She goes, okay. I said, so kindness. And she writes down a score. And I said, 
honesty and she writes down a score. And we went through a bunch of things. And every time she would write it down, I would say, okay, do you write? She says, yeah, so I'd score myself. And every time, whatever I would say, whatever she had wrote was in one point. So if I'd said a seven, she'd say a six, or she'd say an eight or a seven. So it was always within one point in the side. So it meant I had a pretty good level of self-knowledge. Right? I mean, I'm a person, I'm, I'm an actualizer. I help people to actualize their, their greater being. So I, I've got to have a reasonable sense of self-knowledge. So then I said to my wife, living my purpose. She goes, okay. So she writes down a score. And then she says, okay. And she says, what do you score yourself? I go, there's always room for improvement, but I give myself a nine. I said, what do you give me? She goes, now remember, we've gone on for like 15, 20 minutes. And she's flashed the cards. And I said, uh, what do you mean? She goes, it doesn't matter. I go, what do you mean it doesn't matter? We've been doing this for 15 minutes. What do you mean? She says, it doesn't matter. Whatever you scored yourself. I said, no, no, I'm asking you, what did you score me? So we fight a little bit, and eventually she flips the card and shows me, it's a seven. I said, seven? Are you freaking kidding me? Seven? I'm mad. My eyes are bothering, veins are going off. Seven? Who do you know who's more living their purpose than me? And she just calmly looks at me and says, no one. I said, how can you score me a seven? She goes, Dove, in the world, you're an 11. But what you're capable of, you're a seven. Authenticity, too. That's authenticity, too. That's it. Beautiful. Great story. We talked about intimacy. We talked about purpose. We talked about vulnerability. You also talk about fierce loyalty. Being fiercely loyal, what does it mean and why does it matter? What it means is everything we've just talked about, actually. It's, it's, it's what I outlined in my book, Fiercely Loyal, is that as we talked about, millennials want to do meaningful work. They want to have mastery. They want to have autonomy, all those things. And ultimately, all that adds up to loyalty. But when it becomes fierce is when there is an emotional connection so again, the, the friend and the acquaintance, the friend is, you will have fierce loyalty to because there is reciprocal vulnerability. And you have to be willing to do that if you want to build fierce loyalty today. So that means you have to fully reveal your purpose, but you have to reveal what you might consider the dark side of that, the weakness of that. So for instance, you might say, you know, um, our purpose is, to, uh, uh, is around healthcare, and maybe you've got some statement around that. But the vulnerability of that, the thing that's going to bond is like, that's a nice statement, but who cares? But here's the reason why. I was very, I'm making this one up, by the way, but you know, I was very close to my Aunt Susie. And Aunt Susie was, you know, she was there for me when I was a little kid, and she really cared for me. And then she was diagnosed, and she was taken away from me within three weeks. And my world fell apart. And I realize now from the work that I did with Dove that that's a, 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 a driving force within me. And that's what this company's about. Even though we don't deal specifically with that disease or that illness, we are about making the world a healthier place because I know that every morning I, I want to make sure that somebody who has an Aunt Susie doesn't lose her. Then people go, okay, boom. I am fiercely loyal for this. Now there's something bigger to fight for. And, and one of the great courageous points, as I said, fierce loyalty comes out of courage. It comes out of vulnerability. But one of the things is you've got to know what hill you're willing to die on. Mm. You've got to know what it is you stand for, what it is you will fight for with every fiber of your being. And that's not about being rigid. 
It's actually based in complete openness. But saying this matters so much to me. You run of these massive social media campaigns. <laughs> um, what's driving you in this? You, you really developed a, an extraordinary marketing machine and, and engine. Thank you. I, I, don't, I, don't know if, I don't know if you do these all or, or by yourself. I imagine there is a good team developing and working these for you. But tell me what's driving you in these and how did you go about developing this social uh, media campaign engine? It started inadvertently many years ago when a friend of mine came to visit me from Australia. That was in 1991. And he said, where's your book? And I said, what book? Right. And as you know, I've written, I think, 14 now. I, I hadn't written any books, and I had all my excuses for not writing them. And he goes, the world needs to know about you. That was the beginning of it. Then in 2000, I went to BEA, Book Expo America, and they asked me, what's your platform? And I said, I haven't worn platforms since the 1970s. <laughs> so they said, not those platforms. Okay. So I began to learn about platforms there. I began to learn about authority through position. So that was it. That was important to me. It was interesting to me, but I, was, I didn't really understand it. When I really did my purpose work on myself, and as I said, my external purpose is to impact the lives of those who I do not, whose name I do not know and who may never know my name, that's the driving force behind the social media. Is I know I get messages all the time from people I've never heard of in countries that are obscure who say to me, you know, I listened to you in this podcast or I, I saw this post you did or I read that article or watched that video that you did. And there's over 700 of these things, videos and posts and articles and all kinds of things, each one. And I go, wow. You know, you bring up the, the one around uh, emotional hygiene. I'm like, wow, okay. I didn't think that, you know, I mean, I might have even tagged you on it, but I don't think about whether you've watched it or not. I just want to get it into the world to lift the world to a higher level of consciousness. And I know I can't do that in my backyard. I know I can't do that hiding out in my closet. And I think, find that so often, and by the way, you might be in a position looking at me and my social media presence and go, wow, what a big ego. I understand that. But here's what I'm saying to you. If you're not out there in the world and you actually have a purpose and you're not out in the world, I'm saying to you, what a big ego. And you go, well, how can you say that? I'm not, I'm not pontificating. I'm not shouting. No, you're not. That's your ego keeping you small. I won't let my ego keep me small. I want my soul and my purpose to let everybody know if I can be of service to them, what it is that I can bring forward for them so they can impact the world. I guess you have already answered the, my next question, which was, going to be, which was going to be, what are you hungry for? You are hungry for impact. You're hungry to, to reach out the people that, that you will never meet and impact their life. Yeah, and I, I, again, I have a point around that that I think is, is vital for us to understand. If you're a leader, you're having impact. You're already having impact. And when I say a leader, let me be clear. You're a father, a mother, a sister, a brother, a friend. You're having impact. You are leading in some way. The question is, what kind of impact are you having and what kind of impact do you want to have? And are you stepping into what it will take to have that kind of impact? Because that kind of impact takes courage. Again, it takes courage and it takes the courage of vulnerability and the willingness to make yourself really uncomfortable because that's where the shift happens. There's no shift in your comfort zone. What are you working on in yourself today, Dov? 
on my own being. Yes. Always working on my level of consciousness. Always working to, to be more conscious. Uh, as you know, my background is in metaphysical, psychological, and quantum. And I'm always evolving that, that thinking. I'm always looking at that. I'm always wanting to be a better communicator. I'm always working on that. <laughs> and I, I'm, as I said, I've been married for 20 odd years and got kids and grandkids. So I've learned how to do that better. I would say the thing I'm working on the most in myself is the same thing I've worked on all my life and will can probably continue to work on, and that is owning my value. Mm. There's a part of me, my ego, that says, eh, you know, probably nobody really cares. And I have, to, I have to battle with that. I have to come to terms with that. I have to say, you know, the insecurities are not, I will not let them ro- rule. You know, I, I talked about that years ago, when I was seven years old, my father left us and I saw his silhouette in the doorway. I came down the stairs and said, dad, dad, I felt the fear. I could tell he was leaving. And he turned around and came back He crouched down. He put his hand on one shoulder, then on the other, ruffled my hair as if to knight me and said, I'm going now. You're the man of the house, seven years old. That's way too young to be a man. I was clearly inadequate for the job, but that imposter syndrome that has been weighing on me my entire life is also the thing I use to propel me forward because I will not allow myself to become complacent. So it's always driving me. It is both a push and a pull. Where will you be in 10 years? <laughs> uh, where will I be on a permanent basis? <laughs> I'll st- I, in all likelihood, I'll probably still be living in, in Vancouver. Um, but where in will I be? Work, in your work, in your offering to the world, in, in the I, sense of uh, your purpose journey. Yeah. Um, uh, I will be running a much larger media company. Um, I have, as you know, I have a media company that is part of what it is that I do with the videos and the TV channel and the podcasts and all those kinds of things and the writing. Um, I see that media company expanding vastly um, and training others in how to do the process that we do of purpose licitation at a deep soulful level. So I see that as happening more and more. I see myself more, more and more bigger world stages. I work a lot of very private and intimate work and work with inside of companies. And a lot of time I'm kind of the secret they keep. And, and, I'm, and I'm okay with that because I love the work. But I think there's a bigger message in it and that I probably need to crawl out a little bit more from underneath my ego and get out there in the world a bit more. If you were, Dove, to lose all that you know and only keep two ideas or two capabilities or two practices, what would you keep? Compassion would be number one. And number two would be curiosity. Compassion and curiosity. If I have compassion, I can connect with other people. And if I'm curious, I can grow. I can learn. Those two things will, will, compassion will lead me to love and curiosity will lead me to wisdom. Beautiful. Well, this was a rich exploration with you today, Dov, as we bring this to landing. What parting wisdom do you want to offer to people listening to create new futures? That's really easy because I just told you, stay curious, my friend, stay curious. As much as you think you know, there's far more that you don't know. So my challenge to you is to stay curious, but with a proviso here, stay curious about what you think you know, not just what you don't know, 
but be curious about what you think you know. What if there's so much more about it that you don't know yet? If you've been married more than 10 years, go home and ask your wife questions or your husband questions or your partner questions that you think you already know the answers to. When I give this exercise to executives, it blows their mind. I ask them, what color are your wife's eyes? And they'll say brown, just as an example. I go, okay, go home and ask your wife what color her eyes are. Or better still, phone her. What color are your eyes, honey? She'll say, you don't know? Well, I, th I think I do, but tell me. And she'll say, hazel. And you'll say, isn't that brown? No, that's hazel. Get curious about <laughs> what, you, what you think you know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you. It's a pleasure and honor. Always a pleasure speaking to you, my friend, and being able to bathe in your wisdom. <laughs>